Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Cation Armstrong about a new book, When Women Invented Television, the untold story of the female powerhouses who pioneer the way we watch today. The New York Times best-selling author of Seinfeldia tells the little-known story of four trailblazing women in the early days of television who laid the foundation of the industry we know today. Well, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So how are you? How was your week? Oh, you know, um, you know, things are things are a little bit bleak in the United States, but um, <laughs> fine other than that. That's great. Catching a little bit of a sunshine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the weather is definitely getting nicer, so there's that. Excellent. So can you tell us, what do you do? Uh, I'm a journalist. I write mainly about pop culture, and I would say history in pop culture, and also, of course, an author, which is why I'm here today. And how did you get interested in being a journalist? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's hard for me. I... I it's hard for me to even answer that because it's been so long, but I mean, back into my youth, cause I was, um, a little bit precocious and, um, you know, I always wanted to be a writer truly always since I could remember and journalism was sort of an idea I then had to make it seem like a little bit more practical, you know, it's an actual job, uh, that sort of thing. And really, I, you know, since I was a kid, I mean, I did it in high school. I literally, I did my high school paper, but I also even um, went to journalism camp, which is very nerdy, um, and also worked for some of my local newspapers, like professional newspapers, even when I was a teenager. So that's why it's it's hard for me to even say, except that it's sort of always been there. And as the journalism landscape is changing so rapidly, how is it, how easy is it to adjust to all of these? 
Oh, not at all. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely, and me even telling that story, it's like from another you know lifetime because I would love to tell young people like, oh, you should go work at your local newspaper and that kind of thing, but that's just not practical for most people anymore the way it was when I was a kid. Uh, and even when I was starting out, you know, as a professional in my twenties, so it's, it's not easy to adjust. And for me personally, I mean, I'm not saying books are like the way to make efficient millions either, but I was lucky enough to get into books and kind of integrate that into my career. And I feel like, you know, and so I've been now writing books for more than 10 years of my career. And so it's like, I was able to kind of really luckily have that as a huge basis for what is now a freelance career for me. And that means I can, you know, write some things on the side for assignment, but I don't have to make my main living that way. It's extremely hard at this point, bordering on impossible to make your entire, you know, living. If you, if you actually need to make a decent amount of money, um, if you're not independently wealthy, it's really, really hard to do as a journalist, especially as a freelance journalist now. And the jobs are just not there like they used to be either. And in terms of community, did you have any mentors that uh, were really supportive of you? Definitely. I mean, I think you have to have that. I think it'd be really hard to get through a career, especially this kind without that. Um, I'm trying to think of the highlights, but um, I feel like I've had at least one, you know, great person at every job that I've stayed at for a while. And certainly when I was at Entertainment Weekly, which is where I was for 10 years before I went freelance and started writing books, um, I had a couple of great bosses, one of them named Henry Goldblatt, who really not only kind of looked out for me the entire time I was there, but was always supportive of my sort of outside projects, including my books. And we've stayed friends and in touch and has continued to, you know, really send me some of the best opportunities of my career. I actually write as, you know, one of the ways that I support my career and also I really love this particular job is that I now write the newsletter for the Peabody Awards, which is uh, awards in broadcasting. And they're really prestigious. And Henry actually hooked me up with them. And it's one of the best jobs that I've had. And it's the perfect complement to what I do because it is not full-time and I can still write my books and things and still feel like I'm practicing some kind of journalism and criticism and being really like having that really regularly and being rewarded for it. So I've had many along the way. That is, that is just a sampling. Wow. So what would be your advice to our student listeners and people who might be interested in becoming a journalist? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, so I don't want to be discouraging because we really, we do need journalists. I think it's one of the hardest times to do it as we were just discussing just business-wise. And the ones we really need are the serious, you know, not that I have, there's this, you know, I can make the argument that there are serious levels to what I do, but, you know, we could really use journalists who also want to be really out there on the front lines, you know, holding government officials accountable and covering important events. But it is so hard to do these days, both in terms of getting a job and also it is, you know, it's 
a profession that's been very denigrated and disrespected and is also under a lot of attack worldwide in terms of, you know, leadership and um, in terms of sort of censorship and worse than that. So, um, you know, it's really, really hard, but we also really do need journalists and people with journalism, you know, skills. So it, it, it just, you have to be really ready to do it and pay a lot of dues. It's not fair how much dues you have to pay, but it's true. And you have to not be in it for the money, but you can also find ways to make a career writing about your passions. Like I have, because, you know, I have a, I have a pretty nice job. I write about, you know, pop culture, history, TV, and pop music and film for a living. And I am very lucky to do that. And that is possible as well. Excellent. So your latest book is When Women Inventing Television, the untold story of the female powerhouses who pioneered the way we watch today. So how did you come to writing it? Uh, well, I write books about pop culture history, and this is my, I think, seventh. I think I'm getting that right. Um, so th these things often accumulate sort of over time as you write other books. In this case, I stumbled on a number of things that kind of, you know, like I was I'm keeping notes over time and eventually it kind of came into something. And the biggest part was when I was writing my book about the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is called Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted. And that came up out in 2013. Um, I had these kind of scraps of research that inspired me, but I wasn't sure what to do with them yet. And one was that I had asked the creators of that show James L. Brooks and Alan Burns, who some of the inspirations for them were in terms of female characters in TV history before they created Mary Richards of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I was even, you know, discussing with them as well, Rhoda Morgenstern, her, um, her sort of best friend, sidekick, better than a sidekick. And they mentioned this woman named Gertrude Berg, who, um, wrote, starred in, created, and produced her own sitcom first back in the radio days and then in the early days of television. It was called The Goldbergs. And it was about a Jewish family in the Bronx. And she really was like the first sitcom star, period. And this is a woman who did all, you know, it wasn't just that she was in front of the camera. She was also creating it, wrote all the scripts, producing everything. She was really in charge. And I did not know this woman's name at all until I looked it up after they mentioned it to me. And it was shocking to me to learn that there's a woman who did this was such a pioneer. This was before I love Lucy. And, you know, I didn't know her name, even as a person who was quite interested in and invested in television history. And then they also mentioned to me this in the same batch of interviews for the same book, um, Betty White had been on the Mary Tyler Moore show and played a character called Sue Ann Nivens. And I asked about the, you know, kind of just how that character came about and how Betty White came to play her. And they said, oh, you know, we had, we had described this character who has her own sort of silly homemaker TV show within the TV show. Um, she's known as the happy homemaker. And they said, you know, we described her as a Betty White type. Um, who's kind of like sickly sweet and, you know, in front of 
the camera. But then the joke is that once the cameras turn off, she is not so sweet anymore, um, unlike Betty White. But uh, when they mentioned this, I said I didn't actually know what a Betty White type was before the Mary Tyler Moore show because I was not familiar with her career before that. And it turned out that once I looked her up, she too had created and produced and starred in her own sitcom in the very early days of television and was also one of the first daytime TV talk show hosts. And so those two things kind of came together for me. And I thought about them for years, actually. And finally kind of started doing more research and figured out that in in fact, it turned out that women did a lot of stuff in early television before even I Love Lucy. And um, most of that work that they did was so foundational, but it has been largely written out of television history and forgotten. And so this really seemed like a kind of hidden figures for early television. And I then added two more main characters to my lineup from there um, and plenty of others. There were many others who did a lot of a lot of stuff as well and who were super interesting. And so that's kind of how this all came together eventually. Well, let's dive into some of these riveting stories. And sure. We're going to start with a very easy question. I, I can't believe I have to ask it. <laughs> so what is television and what kind of television are you talking about? D- So, I mean, I think you're asking that because we have streaming now. I could be wrong, Um, but it is kind of funny because you're right. In a way, TV has changed so much and actually particularly more recently that it's, it's really interesting. Like there's, there's stuff about early television that makes it very different from what we watch now. Um, so in this case, you know, we're talking about, it's basically like the way they sort of saw it was radio with, you know, pictures with movies with moving pictures, we could actually see it um, because they were coming out of the radio era and um, they had been getting all of their entertainment that way so far, including things like sitcoms. You would just hear them and not see them. Um, So this allowed, you know, this signal to actually get into people's living rooms and they could see it for the first time on this box. You know, it was a broadcast signal and they could see it. And I like to describe that because it you have to cast yourself way back to this time to understand certain parts of why things happened the way they happened, you know, that sort of thing. It was a very different experience. I mean, people went crazy because they hadn't been able to see their favorite stars before this. I mentioned Gertrude Berg had a radio show first. She went for 17 years on the radio where she was one of the biggest stars in America, but a lot of people hadn't seen her. Um, they had just heard her. So it was a very different experience for her when she was on television and could suddenly be recognized in the street. So that's a really important kind of concept to think about here. Um, and that's obviously, you know, all of this, it, it also had to be live for the most part. Some, there were exceptions that started to come in, but it was mostly live. So that's another huge part of that experience that, you know, it was sort of on and then it was never on again. <laughs> you know, there were not even reruns at first. It took them a little bit to even figure out how to do that. Um, and they, uh, you know, it was really just like this very basic thing where everything, you know, you had to be in your house at a certain time with the TV on to see something that was the only choice. There was no recordings. And, you know, so this is very different from say what we have on streaming now, which is where we can get almost anything that's ever been made, you know, at, at any time we want. 
So who were the earlier audiences? Who could afford it? Yeah, this is another huge, huge, important factor is that in the earliest days, it was very expensive. You know, I, I have the exact figure in the book, but it's, it's something ridiculous. It's like thousands of dollars in current terms to buy a television. It was like, you'd have to buy like a $10,000, you know, appliance today for it to be equivalent. And so it was really in those early years. And we're talking about, you know, my book starts in roughly 1948. And so those first couple of years there, it was really only quite wealthy people who had it. And this is when, you know, everybody in the neighborhood or all of the friends and family would come over to that one person's house to watch TV together because most people did not have them. And it really changed things in so many ways. It changed things for television and changed things for the world when around the mid 1950s, it becomes much more affordable and everyone starts getting it. And just to set the stage, so early days were also black and white, weren't they? Yes. Yes. Also very important. It, the color doesn't really, you know, it's, it creeps in over time, but it really isn't even available at all until the mid fifties. And then it's still not prevalent until the sixties. So who were the, at the forefront of the television in those early days? Uh, I mean, there, there were certainly still plenty of your classic, you know, white male executives and that kind of thing. So I don't want to, you know, give the impression it was nothing but women, um, but it was a lot more women. And I actually did some very crude kind of calculations and, and this is only just from me making the best list I could from you know, the research available and then um, comparing that to more accurate kind of precise studies that are done every year today. But it basically came out to like 40% of creatives working at the time in network television were women, which was, is not that far off from like now, you know? Um, and that to me was, was a huge shock and another reason that I wrote the book. So let's delve into some of the characters that you cover. So uh, who, who are those four women that you focus on in this book? So the four women, I mentioned Betty White and Gertrude Berg. There's also Hazel Scott, who is the first Black person to have her to host her own uh, national broadcast primetime show. And Erna Phillips, who created the actual genre of the daytime soap opera. Um, she actually did that in her radio days. And, you know, her bosses asked her to come up with something that would appeal to women so that they could literally sell soap to them. That's why it's called soap operas. And, you know, so that they could have these commercials for household products. And she came up with these serialized um, family dramas, essentially, that really becomes the soap opera form. And honestly, in many of the kind of tropes that she use still are recognizable in our soap operas today. They're not, you know, soap operas are not as prevalent as they used to be, but um, she really came up with that whole genre and then brought it over to television with shows like The Guiding Light and um, As the World Turns. They really knew their audiences, did they? They did. And I mean, Erna in particular, I would say, well, that's not true. I would say actually all of them, you're right, in their own ways. Erna was brilliant at this in very specific ways, um, probably because she was just, a, you know, she was a creator behind the scenes and had 
built this, this genre and this empire really around the genre. And so she really, one of the fascinating things about her work is that she, she knew her audience of housewives so well. Um, she was often sort of fighting with executives about this stuff, but she made her works kind of deliberately, um, slower paced. They would often explain what was going on verbally on the screen almost kind of closer to a radio show. And at first, you know, the executives really didn't like that, but she explained that it had to be that way because housewives had it on in the, in the room, but they had to be able to do their work during the day. So they had to be able to be ironing or doing the dishes or something like that while they had it on and were sort of listening and it's sort of watching. And so, you know, just that tiny detail was something that made her work really successful. Um, and it makes it also look kind of silly to outsiders. It's a lot of why it would get bad criticism. Like how dumb do you think we are? But she was doing it very deliberately and somebody like Gertrude Berg is very different. You know, she's got a primetime audience for her sitcom, the Goldbergs. Um, and so she was often thinking about things like, um, you know, she had this very Jewish family that was proud of being Jewish But she also knew, especially when she went to television, she had a lot of Gentiles too. And so, you know, how do we take this family and keep them, you know, keep them very, very authentic while also still, you know, appealing to this wider audience? She, another one of my favorite things about her is how much she would play to her character. Um, Her character's name is Molly Goldberg, and uh, she is a, you know, Jewish immigrant housewife in the Bronx and, you know, cooks all the time, wears these aprons all the time. She has an accent. Um, she wears house dresses and Gertrude really played up that image, you know, in a broader sense. So she had like a line of house dresses that she, she sold in department stores. She had a cookbook that was out and this is particularly fascinating, not just from a business sense, but also because this is a woman who dressed in complete finery when she was being herself off duty, um, you know, dressed impeccably, really expensively and did not cook. And yet, you know, she really played into this image by having these ancillary products that underlined that image that people loved. And she, you know, even though she was, when she went to interviews, she would really much be, really be herself and be in her hats and her gloves and her jewelry and speaking in her mid-Atlantic accent. But, you know, she knew how to play to her audience as well. And what about Hazel Scott? How did she handle her audiences? <laughs> oh, she was, that's a little different um, because I, she was certainly aware of her audience. And so she was a jazz musician and she was incredibly popular and successful. It's important to note that. And that's, I mean, that's why she got her own show and her variety show was really just, you know, this was very typical for the time. It would be her playing with her band and maybe have a guest on to collaborate with them or chat with them or something, but mostly it was going to be her, you know, sitting at a piano. That's what she did and doing some of her numbers. And that was kind of it. And she was really, really watchable and she's beautiful, um, elegant. And that is why she got this gig, but she was also really cognizant of how she was presenting herself to the audience. Um, she was a really big 
early outspoken civil rights activist. And she was married to Adam Clayton Powell, the congressman. Together, they were kind of this political power couple. And she would often use her work and her career to make political statements. So, um, and this will get back to the show eventually, but I just, just as background, you know, one of the things she would do is like, she would not play segregated venues. And this is still when we had the Jim Crow South in America. And so if she walked into a venue and saw that it was segregated, she'd just walk back out. And that meant she was in breach of contract. It would get a lot of press. Um, but that was kind of deliberate. It was like, if she, first of all, did not really did not want to play those venues. And, but second of all, would use those as opportunities to speak out. And, uh, she gave this sort of famous interview to time magazine where she said, I don't know why someone would come to see someone who looks like me play, but wouldn't want to sit next to someone who looks like me. And so, you know, she was, she brought all of, all of this kind of thing into every part of her work really brilliantly, um, she had contract stipulations that said she wouldn't, um, she basically wouldn't play anyone who wore a uniform, which was a way of her getting out of playing what she called singing maids. Um, she had wardrobe approval over everything she did. She, you know, was always only credited as herself. So it'd be Hazel Scott as Hazel Scott. Um, this again, kept her from playing these kinds of roles she didn't want to play. And on her show, she really had more control than she ever had in anything else when she was doing, for instance, movies. And this was her own thing, you know, and all her. So she got to pick her wardrobe. She had this very sort of elegant set. So you would always wear like evening gowns essentially and look gorgeous. And she had this set that looked, that was described as kind of looking like a New York city penthouse. And so that to me, again, is a big signifier. She's trying to show herself in this opulent, elegant setting. And so she was very cognizant of that. And her band was her and two black men. And that was also a really point of big point of pride for her is to, you know, kind of, she's basically like, this is a bunch of black people making a show. And that's a huge deal when it's 1950 in America. So, you know, she was very cognizant of her audience, I think in that way of making sure that her presentation was exactly what she wanted for that. That's amazing. So she's she basically pioneered using television as a platform for her own activism. Exactly. And I think of that, you know, sort of that whole, the presentation, the, the, the sort of um, forward thinkingness of it all. It's like that goes decades into the future. We were still, this was still a really big deal to have, you know, a really successful black woman as the mother on the, the Cosby show, for instance, or, you know, when we got Oprah, it's like, I see this kind of like the way that it goes forward and is still, you know, it still seems fairly progressive to our, our eyes even today. So how did World War II impact the whole entertainment sphere and this post-war period? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part too. And you have to think of um, a huge part of World War II's story is the way that women had to go to work uh, in some, you know, in, in a lot of sectors. And so that did allow women to get more into, in this case, particularly radio, because, you know, that was the early to mid forties. And so that 
does prime the, the, the sort of market for women to first be in radio and then they have that experience. And, and also, I guess the chutzpah, right? They're like, well, I did this in radio. Um, and so I do think women like, I mean, all of these women to some extent, and certainly I think of Gertrude and um, Betty, they really both had solid backgrounds in radio that helped them make the leap into television in different ways. Gertrude had been much more, has, was much farther ahead of Betty. You know, she had a lot more success that she brought with her. Um, so she actually, one of my favorite kind of scenes in my book is that uh, right in the beginning, I use this actually, Gertrude had been on the air, as I said, for 17 years. And that included the span of World War II and on the, on the radio. And so she had been trying to get her show revived on television and wasn't having much luck. So she finally went to William Paley, who was in charge of CBS. And she went to his office and she just said, listen, I got you through World War II on the radio. You owe me this. You need to give me a television show. Um, so that's a really good example of, you know, she had all of this experience and all of this credibility and TV was still figuring itself out. So I think in the end, he didn't have a lot to lose because it was like, great, you know what? Let's try this. We're no, nobody knows what we're doing right now. Very, no one had really brought sitcoms to from radio to television successfully yet. And she ends up building the first, you know, TV, TV I would say family sitcom in particular. And that too, kind of like Erna Phillips soap operas, when you look at these episodes of the Goldbergs, they look pretty similar to what feels familiar to us now as a family sitcom. You know, it's the family in the living room for the most part, often in the dining room, kind of working out little problems together and ending up pretty happy in the end for the most part. And she really, she did that. And that is, you know, that was one of the reasons I was so shocked that I hadn't heard of her before. So these women, they did achieve quite a lot of success in what they did, but it, it must not have been all that easy. So what were some of the obstacles that they faced along the way? I mean, it's really true. And they, they faced more obstacles as, time went on. And that is mainly because, as I said, in those early days of television, like 1948 or so, you know, radio was still the predominant form of entertainment, of mass entertainment. And so that was where all the money was. So TV was kind of like, eh, we're not sure what we're doing here. We're still figuring it out. Um, and so the power wasn't there yet. And it wasn't until all those people started buying more televisions and, you know, TV really started to take over as the main form of mass communications that suddenly there were many more impediments in these women's way because the men, the white men were coming over kind of essentially from, you know, radio to, radio to television. And also, I think there was this post-war uh, wave of conservatism in America. It was very much a, suddenly became about like, you know, patriarchy and the nuclear family and women stay home. And all of those ideas became more entrenched as the fifties went on. Um, even though we think of that as the fifties. So all of that stuff was really working against them. So Betty White, for instance, um, this is something that I felt like often people didn't know about her, but so she was, as I mentioned, one of the first successful daytime talk show hosts in at a, on a local show in Los Angeles. And 
she became so successful that she had been married at the time. This was actually her second marriage. And her husband kind of said like, well, I didn't know you were going to be this successful at this. And so once it really took over her life, she actually ended up on the air five and a half hours a day, six days a week, which is extraordinary. That's live television. Um, And then she got her own sitcom on top of it. And she loved being busy. She loved working. She loved her work, but her husband said, I can't do this. And so she had to choose and she chose to work instead of her husband. So they got divorced. And for a long time, she swore she'd never get married because she felt that it was a choice between the two. And she always wanted to choose her work. She eventually got married in the sixties, but that's because she found a supportive husband. Um, So there were things like that. There were also just things like racism and sexism, of course, but a huge other problem for these particular women, two of them was the Hollywood blacklist. And this maybe kind of goes with what I was saying about the wave of conservatism, this is definitely part of that. And basically what would happen is we had kind of these waves of what we call the blacklist. And this was another world war post-world war II phenomenon because the cold war is starting and now we are afraid of communists in America. And so the way to kind of tar someone's image is to accuse them of being a communist. And we were so scared of them that people would do almost anything just out of fear, you know, to kind of get rid of this person in any way possible. And so a lot, a lot of times, I mean, a number of different sectors of, you know, of the population came under this scrutiny, but a huge part of this was prominent people in media and the growing power of media kind of collides with this, right? And especially as TV is becoming super powerful, it's in people's homes. You can see these people in your homes. And so it suddenly becomes very scary to think that some of those people being beamed into your home might be communists. And the way to sideline people is to accuse them of that. So a an edition of the blacklist essentially in 1950 comes out. And this really, I didn't know how this worked until I was writing this book and had to research it. But in this case, it's like, there's this group that puts out this pamphlet that lists a bunch of people that they say they think might be communists and that's it. And then they kind of let market forces take control from there. And Hazel Scott was on that list. And that was right as her TV show was gaining prominence was right when it was going from, you know, it it had started as this one night a week local show in New York and had expanded to multiple nights a week and then expanded nationally and was getting great reviews every week. And so it was multiple times a week nationally and was doing great. And she appears on this list and Gertrude Berg did not appear on the list, but her TV husband named Philip Loeb was on the list. And she got caught in this because her sponsor, Sanka Coffee, demanded that she fire him. And she said no. And she tried to fight this behind the scenes for some time. And so the way these both work out in the end is that Hazel Scott goes um, and actually asks to speak to the House on American Activities Committee, which most people did not do. They usually only went if they were subpoenaed and often did not want to go then either. Um, but she took her chances, spoke to them and told them all the things they were doing wrong. And that did not go well for her. 
she basically, it was great that she spoke her mind. I think it was really, really brave. If you think of a black woman going before a bunch of, you know, white congressmen, many of them from the South, but it did not pay off. It did not work for her. I mean, I think it paid off, but it did not work for her in terms of her career. And one of the first things that happened is that she, um, her TV show was canceled and it just, no questions asked. They just done. We're not doing this anymore. And they just said, we don't want any trouble. There were no signs that anyone was going to stop watching it. There were no signs of protests. It was just, nope, we don't want to do this. And that was a real letdown for her because it was one of her favorite jobs. And it meant she'd have to go back on the road, even though she had a young son. And Gertrude Berg sort of fought the Philip Loeb firing for quite some time behind the scenes, what did not get anywhere. And um, this was sort of a problem because it kept the show off at a critical time. You know, it was at the heights of its popularity. It was a top 10 show. Um, It was, I believe, it it was among the top shows on CBS for sure. And they were planning to bring it back the following fall paired with a new show called I Love Lucy. And instead, Lucy premiered alone because Gertrude was still fighting behind the scenes. Obviously, we all know what happened to Lucille Ball. And Gertrude was kind of left in the dust. And she eventually got the show back on the air on a different uh, network on NBC, but they only ended up taking it in the end without Philip Loeb. So she lost that battle anyway. And she kind of kept paying him until the show was over, but had to replace him. The show was never the same. It never had, you know, it lost its momentum. And I believe that that's why we do not, a lot of us don't know her name today. So how did television evolve over time to what we see today? I mean, that's a lot of stuff, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I think it's it's its own fascinating history. And, you know, there's been a lot of, it's essentially... Something that I think is very interesting is just the that technology changes and that really changes what we see on television. And so, you know, we go into this period right after this that I'm, you know, of kind of what I think of as the father knows best period where men are really very much in charge, you know, things, order is restored from a, from some people's perspective. And we get the, I mean, it's literally called father knows best, you know, we get the very typical 1950s thing that we think of when we think of TV in the 1950s, the nuclear family in the suburbs, you know, mom and dad, dad's in charge, mom's at home in the dress, vacuuming, that kind of thing. Um, And then, you know, at least we, we get color in the sixties. We get a lot of very silly television in the sixties as you know, they try to go kind of as broad as possible and please as many people as possible. And, you know, that, more or less holds true, you know, through the eighties and nineties. And that's all those decades is when we still have this kind of ideas that like in a, in whatever country you're in, there is a little bit of a monoculture, right? It's like, there's only a couple channels that you can major channels that you can choose from. And most, a lot of people watch stuff together. So, you know, all the way through the era of like Seinfeld and friends, when lots of people watch it, even across the world, you know, those shows reached, and really cable starts to break that up. And then because there's just more choices and then obviously streaming just completely has changed the model and made all kinds of things possible. It's made us able to get 
you know, now we get mad if there's something we can't find from any time in history. There's, it's gotta be there somewhere that we can find it. And, um, you know, we can get almost anything we want. We can watch it at any time we want. And that is all, that all makes things very different. So we will never probably have those gigantic shows again, where 40 million people watch. And uh, how do women find this, uh, the space basically nowadays in television? Honestly, it's not bad for women. Um, I mean, there's trade-offs, but the thing that has happened with streaming is that we actually, in a sense, have infinite space. Obviously, we don't totally have infinite resources, though during this buildup, you know, um, era, we kind of, it's like we almost have, it's like they've just been throwing money at making almost anything. And so because there's that sort of infinite space versus when you think back to the old model, which it was, you know, really old, it was like three major channels and, you know, only so many programming hours in the day. So now we, you, that's, that's all thrown out. So that means they can make a lot more, which means they can take a lot more chances. And so between that and just a general push for diversity, we have seen, you know, a lot more voices and a lot more kinds of people than we used to see. And so that's great because that means, you know, we've seen more women, but we also have seen more different kinds of women. And all of that is great because it means there isn't like one show or a couple shows that have to stand in and, you know, for all women. And that to me is very, very exciting. And I do think sometimes about my four women well, Betty just died. So she actually did get to see that's it's mind blowing to me that Betty was one of the first people on a television period on a broadcast channel, you know, on a broadcast signal. And then she lived all the way to a time when she could see herself on Netflix. That's incredible. And when I think of some of my other women, I think they'd be really excited by sort of to see their legacies in what we see on streaming today, whether that's, you know, I think of Erna Phillips as kind of, uh, you know, the, the pre Shonda Rhimes or, you know, Gertrude Berg as the pre, you know, Tina Fey, et, et cetera. And I think they'd be so excited to see what women kind of are allowed essentially to do today. It's really great. So, you know, we still have work to do. It's still not, we still don't have parody. And certainly this means much smaller audiences for a lot of this stuff. So they're, you know, they can't quite have the power that even these women had or, you know, women who would have been in charge in the 90s or even the 2000s. But the good news is just a lot more uh, creative voices out there. So what would you like to see in the future, either near future or like very far future? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question because it's like, you know, obviously I'm always just saying like more and more and more, that would be one thing. So just the more women who are writing their own stories is great. Um, and like I said, different kinds of women. And, you know, if I try to think of like some holes in what we're seeing, something that I've been thinking about lately, which has to do with my own age is, um, I'd really like to see more diverse age groups of women as, you know, main characters, badass characters, as the people writing these, that would be mind blowing. Um, you know, I am now becoming, as I get older, I'm becoming more aware of this incredible void of women. I'm going to say over 50. Um, I'm not quite there yet, but like, I'm thinking about it. 
And I want to, I want to have women to look up to. And even, you know, we do have somewhat, we have a decent number of women in their forties and probably more than we used to, but I, I just feel like there's so much that we're not seeing, you know, and especially women in their forties, fifties, sixties, it's like, there's, there's a lot of life that is lived there and a lot of drama. And I don't see much of it portrayed. I think we could still have more like super powerful women on television. Like I, you know, someone was asking me, like, could we ever have a female Tony Soprano? Um, and I don't know that she needs to be a mob boss per se. Um, but you know, even just a really powerful, flawed, complicated female CEO or something as a major character, you know, it, there are definitely still a lot of things we don't see. We do tend to see like hot 30 year old girls, (laughs) for the most part, you know, and I know there's a lot of interesting things that happened in your life around that time. I get it. I watch those shows too. I like them. Um, but we still, even with the many diverse voices we have, it's like, we still tend to have, it's like, you know, love Issa Rae, love Insecure, but I want to see her, you know, I want to be able to see her in 10 years, still kind of depicting her own life and in 20 years, still depicting her own life. Like that would be cool if we had a, you know, really badass 47 year old black woman, you know, expressing her point of view on television. That would be really great. And in terms who's running the show, do we need more executives who are women, for example, in minority uh, groups and uh, just senior positions being occupied? Yeah. I mean, this is a huge part, right? And it's something that really was not true at all in the when women invented television era, there were, there were definitely not women, you know, in those boardrooms at all. Um, but, and that would have helped a lot and that it just helps, you know, it, it's like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've run into this in my research and it's obvious, but there's plenty of proof too, that it makes a difference when you have those women, um, in those decision-making roles, there was a woman, um, a female executive at CBS who was in casting when the Mary Tyler Moore show was made in the 1970s. And she was a huge, huge proponent of this show because, you know, here's like, she was like the only female executive and, you know, she immediately responded in a way to that show in a way that like the men just didn't get it. And you see this over and over. You see this, if you read criticism, even like where male critics often just seem completely baffled when there's something made that isn't for them Um, because they're just not used to it. You know, we're used to like, women are used to sort of seeing things from men's perspective. We're never like, I don't get this Tony Soprano guy. What's his deal? Um, You know, we we're just used to doing that. And I know people of color are used to just getting with the program and identifying with white people if they must, because, you know, they've just learned to do that. Um, And yeah, I think the more that you have that, the, the better off we will be with, these kinds of voices and also like the good ones. Like I can always tell, you know, when a show is written from a woman's perspective by a woman versus not, you know, you can really feel those, those authentic voices. And we have seen many more of them, like I said, than we did in past eras. So that's good. And now thinking about the wider picture. So why is it important for us as a society to really know and understand and remember the uh, people who were pioneers in their own spheres of uh, activity, but quite often overlooked. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, a huge part is actually just knowing that there are women there. Um, you know, we're always sort of scanning the horizon past, present, and future for like women to look up to, you know, and knowing that they did it is really important in and of itself. And of course, them having, getting the credit that they deserve as well and their stories being told, all of those things. I mean, I think any, almost any woman because of the way I, I chose these this, these four women because of kind of, they, they each represented different parts of the industry, different kinds of women and even different lifestyle choices, essentially for women in those positions. And, you know, I have Betty who was, single and chose it on purpose. Hazel, who was married to a powerful man and had a young son. Erna, who adopted two children on her own as a single woman. And Gertrude, who was married and had a very uh, extraordinarily supportive husband for the time. Um, So I think like almost any woman could kind of even relate to each of these women and and kind of find themselves in these stories. And it was a little bit hard because when like part of the point of this ends up being that, you know, all like each of these four women's stories are forgotten to some extent. I know that Betty White is known, but a lot of this backstory was not known. And, you know, so the, it's kind of a sad ending. <laughs> That's the best way I could say it is like, it was, this was actually a little bit of a problem when I was selling it because some publishers were like, yeah, but this would be so much better if the women had banded together and like overthrown, you know, the blacklist or patriarchy. And I was like, yeah, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, I bet they'd think so too, but they couldn't because, you know, how could they? And I thought a lot about like, now we have things like, you know, we have groups for this. We have like women in television groups and things, right? They didn't have that then. So they were not, they couldn't, they were too busy fighting their own battles to like get together and overthrow patriarchy. Um, But that said, I still think there's a lot of inspiration to be found in their stories. I mean, they all survived in their own way is one thing I can say. Um, and you know, while their careers kind of faded to, you know, they, they faced a lot of difficulties in the fifties. Um, you know, Erna comes up as one of the most successful creators of television ever. Her, you know, the guiding light holds the actual world record for longest running broadcast show in history because it started on radio and went to television. Um, you know, and Gertrude actually went on and reinvented herself one more time and was a Broadway star and actually won a Tony. And she was, she had a bunch of Broadway plays in the work when she died pretty early in her sixties. And, you know, Hazel (laughs) said, screw it and moved to Paris, which I think is great. (laughs) And, um, you know, had some difficulties, but also continued to play and be quite successful and have a pretty glamorous life in Paris. And Betty is of course Betty. So in their own ways, even though there's kind of this sad moment at the end of this era that I'm talking about, I mean, that's why their stories are untold to some extent is because it's kind of a bummer at the end of that particular part of the story. But I, I tried to like show both their legacies and the inspiration in their stories, uh, because I think that's what we have to take from this and we can't not tell their stories just because there are sad parts. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book when women invented television surprised you the most? Oh gosh, there were so many. There were so many. It was really fun. And it was it was really the only book I've done so far that was mostly archival research. 
Um, so most of the time I've been doing, you know, I did a book on Seinfeld. I did a book on sex in the city. So that's a lot of interviewing of live people, you know, who lived through it. Three of my four women were dead. So most of it was archival and this made it a little feel more like a little kind of like mystery hunt kind of thing. And so, you know, there were many discoveries. I really, I was very excited to find this stash of interviews in this completely random archive. I don't remember how I ended up finding it in Los Angeles. uh, There's a woman who was friends with Betty White. And this woman was also a freelance journalist. And it turned out one of the things she would do is she'd interview Betty and take all the notes And then she'd like write them up into little pieces and try to sell them to women's magazines. But Betty was really forthcoming with this woman, I think, because they were friendly and, and she had the notes from the complete interviews. So this is where I found most of Betty really talking frankly about how she just didn't believe in marriage anymore for herself. And, you know, it's impossible. There's nothing like finding that because that's just, that's almost like time traveling short of me being able to ask the questions. It's like time traveling and interviewing Betty in the fifties, you know? Um, so that was really exciting. Um, I loved being in Erna's archive, just period. One of the things is that she had an entire unpublished autobiography that she'd written. And that's really similar to, you know, Betty's interviews and that it was written contemporaneously. It was written from her perspective and it was very, very honest. And so, you know, one of the things that really stuck with me is I mentioned she adopted these two children on her own and she wrote extremely, almost, almost shockingly, frankly, about them at times and often said, she, she basically said she regretted um, adopting them, which sounds awful. And most, I think a lot of people wouldn't want to say as a mother, and I don't think she meant it against her children. She felt it was much harder for her to raise them on her own than she had expected. And she was particularly fraught about never being able to give them a father figure. And so that was really interesting. It was also just interesting to read her script notes and things like that. And you could see her little cigarette burns on the page, which felt really intimate to me. Um, So there were, you know, so it was just like this constant where you're just paging through so many pages of people's deeply personal stuff and hoping to find answers to the questions you have about their life. And some answers I found and some not, not as much. Gertrude was a real enigma because she presented herself the way she wanted. And she didn't talk about the things she didn't want to talk about. And one of the things that she left mostly out of the conversation about her life was Philip Loeb. And first of all, having to fire him. And he later, a couple of years later, he ended up taking his own life. And so, you know, that was something she never addressed in any way, really. I mean, she wrote an entire autobiography in which she just omits the entire situation. She mentions him once when she like, he's great. And then she just never, she covers the rest of her life, but does not mention firing him or his death. And so stuff like that, it was like, I'm trying to figure out, you know, where this fit into her life. And I found hints, but I never found you know, the real answer. And that's just, you know, she didn't want us to know the answer. So we're not going to know the answer. And did you ever think or consider that if you were in those days and you Mm. had to start your own show, what kind of show would that be? 
Oh my gosh. It's so hard. I don't, is this true? There must be some people who can imagine themselves in the fifties. I have a really hard time <laughs> like just with the style and everything. It's like, who would I be? It's hard to imagine who I would be. I wonder if I would be like a woman who got married and then got, you know, was very embittered about being a housewife. That would be my guess. Um, <laughs> so I think I'd like to, if, if I could, if, if they would let me, that's the, that's the show I'd like to make. <laughs> I'm sure they would not let me, but I'd love to make a show about a woman who got married young, regretted it, and then was an embittered housewife. Oh, love it. Just speak frankly. I hate hoovering. Right? Wouldn't it like, wouldn't that be amazing if she was just like drinking? I'm imagining like, even though I don't smoke and I I actually physically have not ever figured out how to, um, I feel like in this era, I would have figured it out and I would just be like boozing it up and smoking. And like, (laughs) I like to imagine something where I like break the fourth wall or third wall. Is that fourth? Whatever that is. And, you know, talk directly to the camera. Betty White did that. On her show, Life with Elizabeth, but it was like cute. I would like to just be like, and another thing. <laughs> Let me tell you about this guy who's about to come home and thinks I'm going to have his dinner ready for him. <laughs> like, that would be amazing. Oh, I would love to watch that show. <laughs> I kind of now I kind of want to make it now. Let's just do it. <laughs> well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So Thank you. What, are you, what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Very sort of a, it's sort of a big, big mood switch, but I think you can also spot the similarities. Um, so I am writing a book, a cultural history of the movie Mean Girls. So very big, very different uh, era. So switching all the way forward to 2004, um, but it's really, really fun and um, I would say like, you know, kind of the connection here is I've long been a follower fan of Tina Fey and this was her first big project and it's extremely funny. And I think it has maybe even, you know, it's, it's certainly still quite well known, but it has not maybe gotten as much respect as it deserves in terms of its contribution to comedy and also has this fascinating and lingering uh, legacy of online life and becoming a Broadway show. And now they're even making a movie of the Broadway show, which was based on the original movie. So um, lots of fun things to explore there. Oh, wow. Looking forward to reading that. Thank you. So what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information of what you do and also your books? Uh, You can visit me online at jenniferkarmstrong.com and all the stuff is there. So you can find my socials and how to get in touch with me and my books and all kinds of stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.